you actually doing what you were preaching um, exactly. and what gets preached. You, 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 it's not theoretical. This is real. Um, mm -hmm. what, what kind of stuff do you use in production? So just like, again, I want to put, put, put myself in the shoes of someone starting. All this theory is nice, but give us an example of someone who's doing this at scale, you, and mm -hmm. what do you actually do? What do you use? Hey everyone, it's David Bumble back with Hank Preston. Hank, it's been way too long. What have you been up to? It has. I mean, it's been a, a really long time, David, since we've talked. And, and the world has changed. Careers have changed. The land of certifications have changed. I mean, so much is different these days. And it's exciting to catch back up with you and see what's, see what's new. So for everyone who doesn't know Hank, I interviewed Hank many, many times in the past. And I'll put a link below to a playlist Hank goes through a lot of development stuff. Hank, you and I were talking about DevNet stuff, and I didn't even know DevNet was a thing, but you you mm. probably knew. So tell us what's changed since those days. You know, let's talk about the certs. Let's start with that. So DevNet certs. Yeah, so DevNet now has a certification track, which is something that we didn't have the last time we were chatting. And it was one of those things that people would always talk through is like, where are the DevNet certifications? How do I get the Cisco certification showing network automation? And we didn't have them at the time, but we do now. And we've actually just recently announced kind of the, 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 the apex of the DevNet certifications, which will be the new DevNet expert certification that's out that like the other expert certifications from Cisco, the CCIE and the CCDE, the design expert, the DevNet expert is intended to, to highlight the skills of a senior network automation engineer. Um, but for the last two years, we've had DevNet associate and DevNet professional, so kind of corresponding to the typical CCNA and uh, CCNP certifications, and then associated specialists kind of in the, the track. So we've got DevNet specialist in data center automation, enterprise networking, collaboration, cloud, DevOps. There's a whole suite of certifications where engineers kind of diving into automation can kind of get that certification to prove to themselves and potential employers that they've kind of got those skills that are important in today's careers and organizations are looking for as they all try to tr strive to transform. So. Hank, I'm going to take the position of someone who's new to this, and I'm going to ask you mm -hmm. some basic questions and some difficult questions. So forgive me. I'm going to push you a little bit like I like to do in these interviews. Um, it's all good. Are there jobs for people certified with DevNet? So I'm assuming that Cisco did research, and that's why this exists. But can you talk around that? Yeah, absolutely. It's one of the things, um, one of the things I learned from becoming part of the Cisco Learning and the Learning and Certifications Group at Cisco is just how much research and proof goes into any certification effort that Cisco puts through. So there's, there are job interviews that are done. There are profiles about who might be interested or who might need this type of a certification. Um, interviews with HR managers, uh, pouring over job descriptions and job requests. So yes, there, there are definitely jobs available for people with these certifications. Um, it's still fairly early. Like there's always a lag behind yeah. when a job, when HR people or those kind of can job descriptions and what are the requirements. Um, so we're not seeing the level of demand like in posted job descriptions for a DevNet associate or DevNet professional yet, but they are starting to show up and it will grow. The explicit requests for the certifications, I believe, will grow um, over time. What we are seeing and what we've been seeing for many years are job descriptions where IT leaders and hiring managers are looking for people with scripting skills, with the ability to use Python or Ansible, experience with public cloud, containers are starting to pop up. And so those types of skills are important to, to organizations today as they're trying to figure out how to handle this this rapid influx of change and demand for change um, that's been pushing into the infrastructure for many years. And so even if a job isn't, doesn't say, uh, we require the DevNet associate, or we're looking for someone with a DevNet professional, look at the skills that they're asking for, and you'll likely see correlation to the types of skills that show up on those blueprints. And so candidates for those jobs can go in and say, look, I've got this certification. It shows these skills. These are the things that were tested. So there's absolutely a market for people with these types of certifications. I think that's something, you know, we saw for you and I for a long time. And that's mm -hmm. why we created that whole series is um, 
There were the this demand for like Python, Ansible, as you've mentioned, like just general dev skills. So let me ask you this question. Is the DevNet track for network engineers learning about programming or is it developers who are learning about networking or is it both? It's actually, so when, when we wrote them, we wrote them to target both sides of the track yeah. um, because we're seeing both of those folks come through. Um, I don't have the stats and the numbers to know like which one's more, but it's it's some mix where we've got traditional network engineers, people that maybe come out of a background with a CCNA or CCNP or even CCIE looking to get into automation. And so we wrote it to kind of highlight and test the skills that they would need to kind of have to go through. But there's also software developers that maybe are looking, um, their background is in web development or Java development or some type of, of software, more software focused, but they're being asked by their organizations to start help helping automate infrastructure, go into a network engineering team and become their net, their their development team, the 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 engineers that are going to kind of build those automation and templates and routines for the the networks that are engineered by the more kind of focused engineering minds. And so for those engineers or the software developers, they probably already know how scripting works and how to use Git appropriately. And so there's elements in the certification around fundamentals of networking. So what is a bridge versus a router, right? What does it mean? What is spanning tree used for versus routing protocols? Um, it's a Cisco certification. So understanding the Cisco portfolio. If a, if a software developer is asked to, to interact with a Cisco ACI controller, right, it'd be really important that they know what an ACI controller is for and, and how a data center fabric relates to maybe a, a non-fabric based architecture. And so the certifications bring and kind of mix these things together. Um, the majority of the certification and the tasks and the weighting do fall into the automation skills, kind of the software side of it. But there's a part of every exam that kind of focuses in on those core infrastructure skills. Um, the way I like to talk about it when I would when I describe the difference in the interplay between like a CCNA and a DevNet associate is that organizations will likely need both skills, but those people with the skills need to talk. And so there's a portion of overlap, right? So there's a little bit of network engineering skills in the DevNet associate, and there's a little bit of programming topics in the CCNA. And where they touch, it allows for those individuals to kind of communicate and collaborate on, on projects so that you bring two people together, um, they talk, and now they can do even more than individually they could separately. So, so if I'm a young person starting mm -hmm. out today, would you recommend, like, do I need to go and do my CCNA and then perhaps go and do DevNet Associate? Or is there sort of like a path that Hank Preston would take? Um, like if you were talking to your, your younger self, that's the way I like to, to phrase it. So this mm -hmm. is not Cisco official necessarily, no. this is you. What would you do today if you were just starting out? Is there sort of a track that you think you would take? It's an interesting question and it's, it's a type of question I get quite a bit. Mm -hmm. And I'll give you the same general answer I give anybody that asks me. Is It always comes back to like, where's your focus? What's yeah. your interest today? Um, you asked me specifically, my interest today is definitely on the automation and the software side of it. Um, when I was a kid, that wasn't the case, right? When I was younger, <laughs> that wasn't the case. But if I was doing it today, I would probably start out on the DevNet Associate track and then go and get maybe the CCNA afterwards. But I've talked to engineers that, are, that will send me messages in email or on Twitter or WebEx and say, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure where to go. I'm, I'm interested in all of these pieces. I really like networking. I, I love connecting wires together. I love the IP protocol and looking at packet captures and understanding kind of the intricacies of routing. But I also don't want to miss out on the automation pieces. Um, and for those folks, I say, well, that's fine, right? There's still a need for really, for engineers that understand the fundamentals of networking. We're always going to need people that know how to build a well-designed network, how to yeah. operate a well-designed network. So go for that first, right? Go for the CCNA, and then you'll get a taste of automation in there. And if you, you get interested and you want to broaden your skills, be a little bit wider, then go study for the DevNet Associate, pick up some of those skills. So you can enter on either side of it. There's no prerequisites. There's no expectation. It's actually something that we we constantly get reminded by a, a, a job role I'd never heard of before, which is a psychometrician. These are the folks that really understand how testing works and how okay. to evaluate skills. And whenever we're talking about 
what to put on a blueprint or what questions are appropriate, they always remind us, right? These are these are entry points. There can't be just expected knowledge on the other side if it's not listed. And we wrote them that way, and the tests are, are, are set up that way. So, What happens if I'm a, a more seasoned network engineer? Let's say I've got like three years, five years, 10 years experience. Mm-hmm. Um, it looks like the trend at Cisco for the last five years. I mean, you and I have been talking about this for a long time, but the trend is more and more to network automation. So do you feel that a network engineer has to do DevNet or at some level? Uh, could they just go to you know DevNet professional or should they start at... Uh, DevNet associate. And again, Hank, this is just your opinion, but oh, yeah. I, I like this thing about, you know, talk to people who are in the trenches, who've walked this road like all of us have. And what, you know, what's your opinion? My opinion is that not everybody needs to have a DevNet professional. Um, not every engineer that wants to do networking needs to be at that level on the automation side. Okay. Just like not every engineer um, that goes into networking needs to be at the, CIS- the CCNP, the Cisco Certified Network Professional level. Um, a lot of it comes down to their interest level and what they're after and what the organizations are in place. What I do believe is that let's say you're a network engineer and you want to do networking, you want to kind of design networks, you want to do good inter, um, routing protocol interactions, you want to build campus fabrics that are reliable, you want to work on a wireless. Um, I don't think you can ignore automation. Um, and that's the same thing I've been saying for a long time is I don't think you can ignore yeah. automation. You need to understand what the purpose is. You need to be able to read a script maybe. Um, maybe make a couple of API calls and work in Postman. Like you need those fundamentals um, on that side. I, I kind of like it back to just the general skills I think every IT engineer needed a decade ago, right? When I was really kind of building up my own career and diving in, there were things that were not specifically related to networking that I needed to understand, right? I had to go through a Microsoft Office class so that I could <laughs> use Excel. Yeah. I needed to know how to do like basic math in an Excel spreadsheet. Um, I needed to know how to type up a Word document and share information back and forth. Um, How to manipulate a CSV file, which in fact is still a skill that's really important today. Those are the types of skills that you just always have to have to do the job. And I think that's where just the basics, the basics around automation are starting to fit into. I think every network engineer shouldn't be scared by Postman and, and saying, okay, I want to make a REST API call because I've got to do the same thing a hundred times. And it'd be quicker if I could do it this way rather than copy and paste from Notepad, yeah. which is how we used to do it, right? We would, we maybe would, like, I remember the, my early days of automation as I would create an Excel spreadsheet and then use like fill columns and like add up numbers exactly. and like manipulate yep. to craft the CLI commands that I wanted and then copy and paste those in. Um, that worked, right? We got a long way doing stuff like that. But now that we have APIs, it's just an easier way to do that. And I think that's where, that's the level of skills that every network engineer is going to need. So I, I remember you you were interviewed by Eric and you, I'll put a link to that interview below. You mentioned that in the DevNet expert, it's not required to write code from scratch. Is that right? It's not for a, a handful of reasons that go through, um, not the least of which is just like the logistics of, a, of an exam like that. Um, there's just not enough time to write all the it's code from eight, scratch. It's eight hours, is that right? Like CCIE? It's, it's eight hours total. There's three hours of it that is the design portion. And then there's five hours, which are kind of the, the do, the, the implementation portion of the exam. Okay. Um, it's modeled very much like the other CCIE exams, expert level exams that are out there. And so in a five-hour window, which is the part where and where you're going to be asked to do some programming tasks and interact with things, I mean, if you were just sitting down to work on one script to build even a simple script for a solution, that could take you five hours from scratch. Yeah. And we couldn't, you can't just, we couldn't test just for that. There's specific skills that we need to look for. And so we focus in on those in the exam. So yeah, you're not going to get like open VS code, start a new document, and then write me a script for this. Um, there's just not enough time to go in. And, and frankly, that'd be kind of boring, right? Particularly for someone that truly is kind of at that expert level that wants to show those skills off. Um, there's a lot involved in, in coding from scratch that's more at the associate professional level rather than the expert level. We're trying to focus in on those expert level skills with the the somewhat assumption in that you nip 
an expert candidate would know how to do like the basics of like code from scratch. We're focusing in on specific parts of it. So yeah, I don't want to cover all the stuff that you discussed with Eric because he, mm -hmm. you and him went through quite a lot of detail in this in the in the uh, in that interview. What are the prereqs for um, for the expert exam? Do you have to do something at CCMP level? What do you have to do to to be able to go to the exam? Yeah, so like um, like the all of the Cisco exams um, in the engineering track, the DevNet track was modeled the same with the the latest refresh that happened about a year and a half, two years ago now. Um, it used to be to take to earn a CCNP, you had to earn a CCNA. Um, it used to be to actually, I think the CCIE was always different, but the yeah. CCNP was always like that. Like you needed the CCNA to take the CCNP. Um, the DevNet associate and the the entire DevNet track was built the same way. So if you are a seasoned automation engineer, you can go straight to the DevNet professional. You don't have to like pre-earn the DevNet associate. To earn the DevNet expert, you don't have to become a DevNet professional. The one thing that's kind of um, may make that may, may, uh, may seem like that's not true is that the written exam for the DevNet expert is the DevNet core exam, which is one of the exams necessary to earn the DevNet professional. But to get a DevNet professional, you have to take the core and then one of the specialist exams. There's no specialist exam requirement for the DevNet expert. You, if you could take the DevNet core, which is the written, and then sit for the lab exam and then earn the DevNet expert um, as it goes through. There's no other requirements outside of that. We're just testing the knowledge at that level rather than make people kind of jump through the hoops to get all the way through. So. Would there be another CCMP type level uh, cert that you would recommend someone get? Or would you recommend they go and do a lot, of, a whole bunch of those electives, if you like, before going for the expert? Oh, uh, so like as part of a preparation? Yes. Okay. Um, yeah, because hmm. I think you mentioned with Eric, the I was going to ask you this, but let's just add it here. Um, ask you this later, sorry. The expert seems to be more focused on network automation rather than like trying to write an app. Is that is that correct? Yeah, so we had to we had to pick like what what type of candidate we wanted the this first DevNet expert lab exam and certification to target. Yeah, and if you look at the DevNet specializations that are out there, they range from enterprise networking to data center to collab, yeah. DevOps, cloud, and it, we couldn't we couldn't cover them all. Like it'd be too much, and it'd be too much to ask any one engineer to like. Be, be at the expert level across that breadth. And so we had to focus in. Um, we didn't focus in on a specific specialization. We kind of focused in on a job persona of infrastructure slash network automation engineer um, on that side. And so if you're you're trying to prepare for it and you, you don't mind taking and you want maybe pick up a couple of certifications along the way, I think the, the DevNet um, data center automation exam the enterprise automation exam or the service provider automation exams, any of those or all three of them, if you really want to do like the, the, the hat trick and get them all, they, they're going to be give you an opportunity to kind of see the types of skills, different types of questions and examples of the types of things that you might see on the DevNet expert exam. Um, but they're not required. The, the DevNet expert blueprint doesn't kind of assume a, an, a level of knowledge from like the SP automation exam. Like it's an independent piece. There's some some overlap, like you'll see NSO referenced on service provider, and then you're also gonna see it on the DevNet expert as it goes through. Like the things do show up, but it's not like a requirement. You don't have to take those to learn the knowledge. You may have to go pick up some skills outside of the exam, but you you don't have to take them. So Hank, the certifications seem to be like formalizing kind of like just random technologies that you and I would have covered perhaps in the past. Like, okay, we're gonna learn some Python because Python's important for network automation. We're gonna learn some Ansible, it's kind of important. Uh, but the DevNet certs seem to have formalized this. So here's a difficult question. Um, what type top five skills or technologies or is it 10 that you, that you think are really, really important that the DevNet uh, certs are perhaps capturing or, you know, Basically, if I'm a if I'm a Cisco network engineer or just a network engineer, what top skills do you think I should learn? Like, if you were starting today, again, is it like mm -hmm. Linux? Is it Python? You know, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but like, what what yeah. do you think are really important skills? No, it's a good question, um, and I was actually just I just sent some answers to one of our uh, marketing folks, very similar to that type of good. a question for for another purpose. 
so Python, I think, is is really important. Um, yeah. You'll see Python that shows up on all the DevNet, the DevNet blueprints as they go through, and even on the CCNA and CCNP ones, you'll see some Python in there. Um, it wasn't just, and that's not because Cisco and the the folks inside said picked Python. It seems like that's the language that has risen to the top for infrastructure automation. Um, it's not the only one that's out there, right? We're what starting to see. Yeah, I was, I was just going to say Go. Like yeah. Go is popping up and it shows up and it's. I think it's a good language to learn if you're interested. Um, the way that I look at it is, and actually what I put into the question that I had to send this morning was what's important to know are basic fundamentals of how to do scripting and how to do programming. The specific language is less important. Like you should pick one and learn it. Um, but And if you're trying to study for a DevNet certification, um, Pick Python because that's the one you're going to see on our exams and you're going to be asked to craft and understand Python scripts to go through. Um, so scripting in general, Python specifically, I think is a really good good one to pick up. Um, REST APIs, right? How to work with a, a generic REST API so that if you're presented with API docs for some new platform, you'll understand how to read the documentation, how to interact with that API from authentication to retrieving data, manipulating data, like understand how APIs work. Um, that is a really important skill for an automation engineer. I can't, can't minimize that enough. Like that is going to pop up. The, another one that I think is important is becoming comfortable with data format manipulation, right? A network automation engineer has no, no idea the types of data that they might have to work with on a daily basis. They're going to get JSON from some things. They're going to get XML, uh, YAML, CSV files. Um, be comfortable with, with just taking any data as it comes, know how to manipulate it, how to translate it into other formats that can be standardized. Like data format manipulation is a huge, huge skill for any automation engineer as they go through. I, I've, I've long been a fan of the new standard network interfaces. So NetConf, RESTConf, and then the Yang data models that go behind them. Um, not every platform supports them, um, particularly when you get into the controller platforms. They tend to have kind of not necessarily jumped into the Yang model for standards yet, but I'm, I'm hopeful that maybe we see some standardization on that in the future. But becoming comfortable and knowing how to interact with the device using NetConf and RESTConf, not being scared of having to work with a Yang model, not necessarily write them, right? That's a different skill set. Um, but being comfortable with those interfaces, I think, will be good. Um, Git skills. So this is this is almost like a new soft skill for an for anybody in IT, and, and we're even seeing it outside of IT today. Um, more and more, we're seeing like the traditional way of sharing documents and maybe SharePoint or Box being translated over to kind of Git-based workflows as they're going through. So being comfortable with source control systems. Um, Git's not the only one, but it's, it seems to be, it's like Python. It's, it's the one that has risen to the top that you see the most often. So being comfortable with Git, manipulating, um, working with files like that. I think those are kind of a, a good fundamental set. If you become good at those pieces, you can bounce and be confident that if you're presented with, if you go to take a job and it's like, okay, well, I've never seen this product before. Maybe they're using a vendor that you're not familiar with. You can have the confidence that you could read the docs, look at some examples, work with them um, because you've got that nice foundation base level of skills to build upon. So. Okay, so two that you didn't mention, I'm gonna push you. Ansible, oh, yeah. you, didn't, you didn't mention Ansible? Mm -hmm. uh, is Ansible no, I, important? I, so I didn't leave it off on purpose. I almost no, no, that's fine. I, I, it's, it's, it's only because we've often had this debate, you and I, Ansible, we, Python, which is best? Which one should I yeah, learn? Ansible's so, not going anywhere. Yeah. I, I almost, to some extent, kind of group Ansible in that first category of scripting, okay. right? Yeah. It's not exactly the same, and you'll, you'll get all sorts of debates and see like blog posts and people are ranting that Ansible is not a programming <laughs> language. It's not, but it is a technology that can be used to solve similar problems. Um, you see Ansible all over the place. Um, having some basic understanding, not being scared of it, I think is a valid one to go through. But I, I kind of group it into that first one of just know yeah. how to do something in an automated fashion. If it's not Python, if you've kind of gone in on Ansible initially, that's great. And if you've started with Python, you'll likely have to learn Ansible at some point. If you start with Ansible, you're probably gonna have to learn Python. Go might show up. Um, I'm a big PowerShell fan for a lot of the, our compute work we do in PowerShell. Um, so it's like, I, that's where, for me, that's where Ansible goes into. It's kind of all in that just automation tooling scripting bucket of skills. It's a, it's a great answer. I mean, I'm only, I'm only, you know, 
being nasty here. It's only because this kind of stuff comes up all the time. So mm -hmm. it's like, you know, you've been, you're a seasoned person in, in this field. Um, you've seen all these debates raging and the rants and stuff. So mm -hmm. if I was starting today, would you recommend do a bit of Ansible and then Python or should I start with Python? Because some people find like Python a big ramp up. Hard yeah, one, um, hard one. I know my, my personal choice is Python because I just yeah. feel Python gives you so much power. But that could be because, you know, I developed stuff in the past and I just find coding easy. Um, but what's your take? I think if anybody's had, has any background, even like an old comp side class, like way back in university and they, yeah. they had to take something, um, learning Python is not that big of a ramp. No. Um, if you understand, like if you know what, like how conditionals generally work, like if you've ever written an if condition or a for loop or a while loop in any language, right? Getting into Python's not hard. Yeah. Um, for people that don't have that at all, right? Have never had that experience. It can be really intimidating to open up a file and start writing code. And I think that's where Ansible is really helpful is it's weird because YAML's not not something that we grow up, like we don't learn YAML out of the box, right? We, we're not born knowing how to speak in YAML, but it seems like the comfort level is there for a lot of folks. Um, and so it's it's a great place to start. It's a nice entry point to go in. Um, there are some things about Ansible. I just <laughs> I just had to install <laughs> Ansible yesterday. I had bad experience with Ansible. Sorry, I didn't want to interrupt you. Go on. So we use Ansible. Ansible is part of how we're building the DevNet Expert exam because okay. we have to automate the actual exam creation. So Ansible is part of our stack we're using to automate. I will say it's it's mostly being used not to automate like network components necessarily, but to automate like the spin up of systems and control Linux machines, um, which I think is still where its real strong suit is. Um, so I had to install it for the for the first time one of the newer versions um my by day and we can go into what my day job is if that's interesting later but by day we we locked a version of ansible a while back um and so we haven't moved in our day job in in the team i work on uh, on a daily basis to some of the newer versions of ansible so it'd been a while since i did like a, a fresh install of ansible and holy cow it took forever um, and just the size and like the, just how much is in there was, was just, I was like, holy cow, like this is a lot just to be able to like run some basic, um, Ansible playbooks against some Linux machines. So I know why Ansible is making this change and the ones that go through there, but it's been a, it's been a, a, a bit of a bumpy ride kind of watching them kind of grow and make these changes. And it's caused a lot of frustration, I think for engineers, myself included, as things just start breaking and drastic changes which for me personally has kind of kept me away from keeping up with Ansible's changes. It's just yeah. gotten really hard to keep up with it when by, I mean, 80% of my time is spent kind of in an engineering and operations role. It's really hard to keep up with like drastic changes like that. So we've, we lock the versions in, so. You know, one of my biggest complaints with Ansible is you upgrade your version, everything breaks. Mm -hmm. It's like, I mean, we had that with Python 2.7 going to three, but um, yeah. it's, you know, that was also a nightmare, but, um, yeah, Ansible just seems to, you know, update on a regular basis, causes problems. Now, for anyone who wants to flame me, you put it in the comments below. But, you oh. know, it's not like I hate Ansible. It's just that's my personal opinion. And it's interesting to get your opinion as well, Hank. Yeah, everybody's got it. And we've yeah. got one of the guys on our team um, is a real big fan of Ansible. Um, yeah. And he's doing a lot of the work and the pieces and he's a proponent. And that's awesome. And then we've got other people on the team that... Uh, I'm, I'm somewhat, I consider myself indifferent. Like I use it and yeah. I've chosen to use it and we're using it in projects. So I'm, I have no problem with Ansible. It's just one of those things. I, I look at it like um, choosing a bank, right? <laughs> no bank is perfect. There's always problems with, with banks and picking like which accounts to go through and like dealing with customer service. But like you learn what those problems are and you just kind of go through them. And I, I see Ansible the same way. It's like any other tool. Nothing's perfect. I know what, where the, where the challenges are and you deal with them. I'm, I'm indifferent. And then we've got we've got one other person on our team that is a very vehement Ansible, anti-Ansible folk. Uh, so it's it's a nice mix as we go through on, on the group, so. Hank, uh, please don't get too angry, everyone who's watching this. What's <laughs> what's the best machine, Hank? Linux, Mac, or Windows? Let's, you know, let's cause a fight. I mean- Oh, I, yeah. <laughs> it's it's the one you know how to use. That's, that's my cop-out answer as it goes through. It's um, a good answer. It is. If you know how to use it, it's the best machine. For me personally, I'm I'm a Mac guy. Have been for for, God, probably, oof, fifteen years now. I think is when I switched from Windows to Mac. Um, 
I like Linux as a development machine. Actually, most of my, my day these days, my desktop is a Mac. And then I do all of my development using remote connection through VS Code to a Linux uh, Linux machine. I think the bigger debate might get into, like, is, is it CentOS versus Ubuntu? Like, which flavor of Linux do you want to go after um, on that side? That's that's just as heated of a debate, I think. But, I mean, you. so let's just step back. You changed roles uh, about two years ago, I think it was, and you, like, got really into the trenches now. Is that right? So day-to-day, -day, you building DevNet Labs, is, did I understand right? So this is how, this is how long it's been since we've talked, David. Yeah, there's, there's been all sorts of changes. So I my where I live inside of Cisco these days is in our learning and certifications group. So learning at Cisco um, is a is the part of Cisco that creates and defines what the certifications are. We build the blueprints, we write the exams, um, and then we create classes, certification focused. Most of them are certification focused classes, and we have instructors that teach those classes. They're delivered electronically. Um, so that's the the group in Cisco that I that I'm in today. And the part of the team that I'm part of is the actual lab engineering team. So we're the group that that maintains and designs the data centers that deliver um, the the DC auto classes, the CCNA classes from Cisco. If, you, if you've taken the dev associate class from Cisco, you're taking that off of infrastructure that our team builds and maintains and operates. And so I'm the, the principal engineer, architect, and um, kind of product owner for our backend data center infrastructure teams that are there. And we're aggressively adopting kind of a, a modernization effort to update just the base infrastructure we're using as well as the way we we manage it. So what the, what tools we use for pushing configurations out, um, monitoring, logging, um, automation routines. We've been doing we've been doing lab automation for for many many years, and a lot of our our automation tools were written long before anything like NetConf or RESTConf or Ansible or Python were available. And but now that they're here, we're finding it's important to kind of like update and modernize those tools, use these new infrastructure pieces, um, rather than write every every library to interact with the device ourselves, because we used to have to. Now it's like, okay, can we can we take advantage of some of these newer libraries and things that are out there so that we can build on top of them and not have to maintain the underlying code, but kind of focus on using them. And so that's this transition that we're in the process of now. And that's my day job is helping kind of run that. Um, I spend I spend probably 20% of my week every week kind of working in Jira, which is a help desk issue kind of agile project management type of a tool. And so I'm in there kind of managing um, what are we working on in this sprint? Uh, what are our milestones that we're after? What are we trying to accomplish in this release as they go through? And so I've, I've gone full on um, kind of agile developer project, uh, project management side, so. The reason I ask you that question is um, you're in a, you're not just talking about this stuff from a theoretical mm -hmm. point of view. You're doing this day in and day out. Is that right? Like spinning up new labs, resetting them, building data centers, that yep. kind of thing. Is that right? That transition from like I, when we first started talking, I was a um, uh, my job role was as a, a developer advocate for for inside of DevNet, and I would lead classes, build demonstrations, look at labs, um, kind of showing the fundamentals and like theory, like implementation details as they went through. But I was really curious what it would be like and what's the, what are the challenges in applying that, those skills to an actual organization that has customers and deliverables. Um, and that's what kind of led me into that type of a piece. And so, yes, absolutely. Um, one of the, I've learned many things from kind of taking the theory, applying them to, to real life. Like what works well in the lab doesn't always work well as it went, goes through. Um, prioritization of projects, um, versioning, like, and that was one of the things uh, I had to write a document um, last week, and I just presented it to our leadership team on what is our upgrade strategy, right? When I, when I'm just working in a lab and building demos, like, I'm happy to use the latest version of a library or tool, or hey, let's grab the 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 latest container image and see where it goes through. Oh, Netbox just released a new a new version. Let's give that a go. Um, that's really easy. Yeah, in a lab with that type of a role, um, we we can't do that. And I've I've had to push back on some of our engineers that want to upgrade. I'm like, we can't. We just we we've got we've got deliverables and milestones. Like we have to build this solution, and we can't we can't take you out of the field to go like upgrade a tool unnecessarily. So I had to write an upgrade strategy. Like how are we going to decide what gets upgraded, when it gets upgraded, 
What are the testing process we have to go through? And those are things that I never would have thought about um, before kind of getting back into that that day-to-day operation engineering role. But they're super critical skills um, and important parts of the process. But it means a slowdown in how fast you can transform, how fast you can you can implement changes when you have to kind of deal with those types of things as well. I mean, for me, the great thing here is that you're not you you, you what, what's the, what, I think it's an American term, you're eating your own dog food, is that, is that right? Mm-hmm. You, you're actually doing what you were preaching. Um, exactly. And what gets preached, you, 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 it's not theoretical, this is real. And there's two parts to it, if I understand right. You're building the actual underlying infrastructure, then you're also building the labs that run within that infrastructure. So it's like, you have to build the lab that CCNA is gonna use or whatever, and then you've got all the infrastructure that hosts all those crazy amount of labs. Mm-hmm. And there's, I mean, it's, we're talking about money now because this is like classes that are running, stuff that's running on, in production. It's not just oh, a lab absolutely. that you're playing with. So, Hank, that's great because that's going to change the conversation slightly. So based on that sort of change in paradigm and, you know, job role, what can you share from the trenches? You know, people will say, you know, it doesn't – I learned this in like a theoretical course, but it doesn't apply in the real world. And obviously, like your environment is different to say other environments, but what are some of the big takeaways you've got from – you know, that experience? Yeah, I think ooh, it, one of the most important ones that hit me um, when I made the transition was I had to become comfortable not not knowing and being aware of everything that's going on, yeah. right? You have to... You have to you have to pick what you're going to focus in on. It's it's like a depth versus breadth type of a piece. And I, I look out there and I... I, I I'm not on I'm not on Twitter as much as I used to be um, for a bunch of reasons, but I go on there occasionally. And there's the 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 rate of change and updates and announcements and cool projects that are happening continues to accelerate. Um, and and I still occasionally feel get like a a, a FOMO right fear yeah. of missing out because I don't I, I'm not aware of what's going on as much as what it is. Like what's the latest release of this tool? How does this one work as it goes through? Um, and so I had to become comfortable saying you know what? I'm not going to know every single tool in the, the potential tool chest that's out there like I used to. But the ones that we've picked, the tools that we've identified that are going to be fundamental to our architecture that we're going to use to operate and become really good at, those ones I've become much more capable with, right? Much better, a much better engineer with a smaller set of tools than I was before when I was a decent, like I was a good engineer, but and I could do a lot with like almost any tool but not at the level that I can do now with those those chosen tools. That was that was a big change for me when I made the adjustment was just that comfort level being like, I don't, I, I answer a lot of questions these days with, I don't know. I haven't touched that in two years. Um, yeah. The last I used this, this was how we did it. And I go and look and it's completely different now. And 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 trying to help connect people maybe just to folks that are still doing that. Because they're still great, great engineers that are doing kind of that technical and developer advocacy. So. I, I've been able to connect folks and help people get answers to their questions, but that was a big change for me. Was recognizing like I can't keep up with them all. Um, uh, the I used to go and say, okay, well let's let's compare Ansible to Nornir to Napalm yeah. to PyATS and like do the same thing with all of them and, and go. Th- it's that's tough to do when I've got we've got tickets to release and things to go through. Um, so that was part of it. Um, the other, the other one that was in there is just the amount of, the amount of, the amount and clarity and type of documentation that I've had to create for some of my projects has changed um, quite a bit, because when we, when I write a, when I write a routine or some automation that's going to manage our data center infrastructure, um, it needs to be written in such a way that any one of our the other engineers that kind of are in scope for that type of technology for us can pick up that work and follow behind me. So that that level of kind of collaboration has become really important, and we're driving into our team is every every part of every task. Right, our definition of done includes documenting something so that somebody else could do it behind you, and so there's that communication skill that's become really important um, as part of it is to be able to kind of relay relay the information that's out there. So it's I can't remember what question you asked me to start out with, but those are some. No, no, it's like what? What's the top like takeaways from you know it's, yeah. what? I, what I'm hearing from you is like soft skills, communication, documentation, that kind of stuff's really important. Don't try and you know drink from the Kool Aid all the time, and um, sorry, or should I say, drink the Kool Aid all the time, and like try and get the latest, the best, because in the in the trenches you you, you can't you, your environment needs to be stable. It mustn't break every second day. Um, 
Now, do you, do you want to say more about that? Otherwise, I'm going to ask you, you know, what tech, technic, technologies do you use? Yeah, the last thing I'll add on that is is one thing that I'm I'm working with our leadership team is to make sure that we still give we give our engineers and our team enough room to be flexible and experiment. Yeah. I don't want anybody on our team to feel like, oh my God, it's terrible. We're stuck in time. We can't do anything interesting. That we still offer opportunities for innovation. Every every project we we assign to somebody has time built in to kind of learn how something works propose new ideas. When we go to pick a tool or pick something, there's engineers are given an opportunity to evaluate. So it's not like we, we stick everybody in time as it goes through. But once a decision's made, it's like it's it's made, we'll revisit this in a quarter or two quarters and see if it's time to update or make changes on that side. So that was, I didn't want to make it sound like we're just stuck in the dark ages of, uh, of Python 275 because we can't <laughs> upgrade, so. Now, I, I understand the problem. You know, when you when it's a lab, you can try the latest bleeding edge stuff because if something goes wrong, it's not the end of the world. It's a lab. But when you've yeah. got money on the line and paying customers, it's a totally different you know kettle of fish. You you can't take the level of risks that you would perhaps if you were just demonstrating the latest and greatest. So getting back to the question, what now in your environment? And I mean, you, you share what you can. What kind mm -hmm. of technologies do you use? Like I remember when we spoke in the past, you really liked NSO. Um, mm -hmm. what, what kind of stuff do you use in production? So just like, again, I want to put, put, put myself in the shoes of someone starting. All this theory is nice, but give us an example of someone who's doing this at scale, you, and mm -hmm. what do you actually do? What do you use? So you mentioned NSO. So I'm still a huge fan of NSO. So Cisco's Network Service Orchestrator product. Um, that is our primary network automation configuration management tool. Um, so it's the tool that we use to deploy kind of anything network related. Um, I one of the 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 primary engineering development tasks I do on our team is is that NSO development. So abstracting what it means to be a network router and make it easy for us to kind of program what those look like. Um, how do we build lab environment containers in a very fast, automated, standardized fashion that can be easy to spin up and, and go through? Um, so we do a lot of that with Cisco NSO, and it programs against our data center network. So that's made up of Cisco NXOS switches, um, iOS routers or iOS XE routers. Um, we've got out-of-band management switches that are also iOS XE. So those are kind of the primary network operating system platforms we have. Um, it also talks to our compute environment, which we're Cisco, probably not a surprise. It's Cisco <laughs> UCS, uh, specifically Hyperflex. And so our, our data center compute stack is Hyperflex based and kind of a converged architecture. So we're programming that. Um, our hypervisor platform is VMware, like probably 90% of the world. So that's what kind of runs our VMs as they go through. Um, we're using, from a firewall perspective, Cisco's um, both kind of the traditional ASA style firewall, so layer three, four, as well as the next gen firewalls, the firepower platforms that are in place there. Um, we do use Ansible. Um, it's a very heavily used tool for us, but as I mentioned before, it's primarily kind of in the Linux system administration zone to kind of do configuration management, stand up of all of the, 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 the VMs and the systems, kind of manage those. Um, we're using HashiCorp's Terraform for a lot of our actual implementation deployment of machines, so kind of like stateful infrastructures code tooling. Um, we also use Vault from HashiCorp for secret management. Um, I've also been a big fan of Netbox for years. So, so the Netbox tool is our IP address and data center infrastructure management source of truth. Uh, GitLab provides our version control, um, CICD capabilities, um, artifact repository for containers and binary files. Um, I'm trying to go through our, our stack sheet to see where we're at on there. Um, we're using PyETS for testing, so writing Python tests against kind of the network and the health of the network on there. Um, we went through an evaluation for centralized logging. So that's one of the, the things that we've been doing in our modernization effort is to, per, I kind of implemented a, um, a concept that said, okay, rather than have logs spread everywhere um, with some, some things aggregated, other things independent and just maintained um, on their devices. So let's get all of our, our logs together. Um, we looked at a few different solutions for that. Um, it looks like we're going to select Elasticsearch for that. Um, we're still doing some final tuning on sizing and whether it's on-prem or cloud and some of these other pieces, but Elasticsearch looks like where we're going to go for log aggregation. 
Um, we use Zabbix for our health uh, monitoring. So our, is the network up? Are our VMs up? Is, are things healthy? Um, Zabbix was the tool we chose there. Uh, we evaluated a handful. That's the one our team liked the most. Um, I think, what other categories, uh, specific parts you're interested in? Obviously, Python shows up all over the place too, so. Yeah, so I mean, my, my, my question, my next question was gonna be a nasty one is, it's, uh, there's this argument that network engineers don't need to learn all this automation stuff because they're just gonna buy tools. It, 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 and I'm, I'm not saying that's the right answer, that's just an argument some people have. It's like, why as a network engineer should I learn Python and Ansible and all this stuff? if I can just buy SolarWinds or you know XYZ product, doesn't matter what it is. Um, you've mentioned a whole bunch of like solutions there. Um, what's your take on that? So would you, what, what, what would you say to that kind of argument? I think it's a bit naive. Um, yes, there are tools and I mentioned a bunch of tools, did, right? Yeah, we, yeah. we didn't build everything from scratch. Uh, that would be ridiculous. I don't have the staff for that. Um, we're, we've, we've got giant gaps in skills and we're, we're hoping to hire extra people and go through and it's both on the engineering as well as on the, the automation side. Um, it'd be impossible for me to build everything. Um, what we do need to do though is use those tools to the best of their ability and efficiency's sake. Um, and so it's, it's an integration task a lot of the time is how do we get these tools to work together and rather than feel like I've worked a lot of jobs where, yeah, we had we had dozens of tools, but every tool was like its own little island. Yeah. Um, we don't want to do that. We want to make sure that like we're, we're operating a platform, right? And the platform talks to each other. And so when we add something in Netbox, um, here's an example for like a workflow that we went through is, is Netbox has all of our devices, our VMs, our switches, our routers, our firewalls, um, every system that's deployed, like they're all in Netbox and I need to monitor them in Zabbix. Um, Zabbix needs its own inventory of hosts that it needs to monitor. Um, in the old day, right, someone might manually go and add them, or maybe they do some export and manipulation and then import something in. Um, but then you end up with problems. You're out of sync, yeah. right? Is, is Zabbix monitoring something that Netbox has shown is, is inactive, right? Maybe it's offline for maintenance as it goes through. And so one of the tasks we had one of our engineers do is I said, I need a way to automatically populate all of the devices in our monitoring tool based on Netbox. And if Netbox shows that the device is active, um, it needs to be enabled in Zabbix. And then based on the device type in Netbox, so Netbox knows that this is a, a network router, right? That should drive the types of templates and temp in Zabbix templates determine like, what are we monitoring on this device? Are we monitoring interfaces? Are we monitoring what services are being monitored? So it's like, I don't want, I don't want anybody to have to like touch anything in Zabbix to set a host up. I just want an automation to go through and say, go make sure that Zabbix is monitoring everything that we have live in the data center. Um, so I have the tools, but I still needed something to put them together. And right, so yeah. we, I needed an engineer that could understand the APIs from both sides, write a bit of Python code, make it a reusable tool that wasn't like just a, some back of the napkin script that would run once, but nobody would understand if they had to update it in the future. Um, so that those types of skills are necessary for automation as they go through. There will be there will be organizations and teams that happen to be in a case where they they have a tool or they select something and everything they need is capable within that one tool and and it's all got workflows and wizards and pieces. And if if for organizations that can do that, that's fantastic. Maybe they don't need to automate as much. Um, that's not the case with most of the, the folks I talk to. Um, yeah. There's there's automation skills necessary to connect these things together, right? It's the integration glue. Um, network engineers have always been connecting things together. That's kind of what networks are. I think the automation side of networking is the same. It's it's connecting these tools, making clear workflows um, function. So that's a great answer. I mean, uh, I I think what you're saying is it, there's no single answer for everyone. Yeah. You've, you've got to find what works best for you. Yeah, and that's why, like, when you asked me what skills are important, I kept yeah. them fairly generic. Cause you if, did, yeah. I think if people have those, if someone had has those skills, I will hire them to work on our team, right? That's what we're looking for is, like, do you know how these basic things function? Because I can, if you've never used NSO before, I can teach you that, right? If you've never used PyATS, um, I can teach you that. It's, and we can teach you like the fundamentals of like how computer science and algorithms work. Um, but like, that's, that's not necessarily what I want to teach someone coming in, right? If I'm going to hire somebody, there's a level of knowledge that I'm looking for and there's stuff that I'm happy to put on top of it. 
Um, and that's that fundamental base skills are what we're usually looking for. Yeah, I mean, the skills that you mentioned were like scripting, Python, like Python, REST API, data format, uh, NetConf, ResConf, Yang type stuff, and Git. Those were the top ones, yeah? Mm -hmm. Yeah, those are if if people have those like the specifics. If you've never used Terraform, I can teach you. We've got we've got a um, a guy that just joined our infrastructure engineering team. He's he he had been working on our team more on the systems development, so building the actual like automation tools and interfaces that students interact with. Um, so he, we brought him in to work on some of our infrastructure. He'd never used Terraform before. I said that's fine. It's this is kind of what it does. Here's here's the knowledge, the learning that we've put together to help people go. It's like go take take three days, kind of figure the basics out. Here's some examples, and now he's a pro, right? He can use that tool to spin stuff up. Um, it's that base fundamental piece, the the specifics that are unique to each organization, what tools they pick, um, what what requirements they have. Those those are going to be different from company to company, team to team. So. I'm gonna have to push you on this though, Hank. Linux, Mac, or Windows? It sounds like you do a lot of dev in Linux. Is that right? I do. My so my my desktop is a Mac, and Macs obviously are kind of like Linux-like in the back end, which is there. But when I do my actual development, I connect from my Mac into a Linux machine. Um, we are currently on CentOS, but because of some pieces, we're also looking to, to kind of co-support CentOS and Ubuntu as they go through. But I connect to one of those machines, and that's where we do all of my development. So when I'm Git cloning, it's onto a Linux machine. Um, when I'm building Docker containers and testing services and pieces, like I'm doing that, like the development work is happening on a Linux machine. Um, my desktop is the Mac experience. So. People always ask this question, and I mean, just give us your opinion again. Hmm? I need to buy a new computer. I'm just starting. I want to become a network automation engineer or someone like you. What would you buy? Do I need a certain amount of RAM, disk space? What kind of laptop would you recommend or device would you recommend that I buy? It's a good question. I so if if the if we take a few things off, like if they don't if they don't come to me with an, with an with experience and that they want to maintain, right? If they if they're not like I've been a Windows guy for ten years, I love Windows. What should I buy now? Well, buy Windows yeah. as it goes through. But if the if it's wide open like that, um, I would say either Windows or Mac are probably okay. I generally would recommend if you're not worried about price and you don't have like a problem with the Mac kind of, there's there's parts of getting into the Apple ecosystem that some people don't want to do um, then I like Macs right they're they're rock solid they work really well there are plenty of complaints out there and people really kind of ragging on Apple for taking ports away and then putting them back like if you get over all of those I've been very pleased with being kind of on in the Mac ecosystem for a while machines last forever um, I, I recently upgraded to an M1 Mac Mini, and the previous machine to that was like a 10-year-old MacBook Pro that, that yeah. I was still using. And the biggest driver for me to upgrade, frankly, was the fact that it couldn't push out the re a resolution to my 4K monitor. And I was just gotten fed up with not using my monitor appropriately. Um, I, I've got a, a, a 10-year-old iMac that is still super useful and works great um, to go through. So I love the longevity of the Mac machines. They're, they're stable. They work really well. I like the Linux backend. Um, but more and more, like, like I said, I'm doing the development in Linux. So I would say if you're buying a machine, make sure you do have enough RAM so that you can maybe do some virtualization. I do yeah. think that there's some importance there. The, co the outside of that is... You can potentially like f um, farm out the virtualization to a cloud someplace, whether it's a public cloud or a private lab data center. Um, that's what I do, right? The the VM that I go into and do my my development on is actually not running on my Mac. It could, but it doesn't. It runs in our data center. Um, so if you don't need, if, like, if you've got another place to run that type of stuff, maybe you don't need as much RAM on your laptop. But if you want like an all-in-one lab machine, um, make sure you've got at least 16 gigs of RAM. Um, that's pretty reasonable on a Mac. Uh, one thing that's nice on Windows is sometimes it's easier to add RAM yourself later, so you can yeah. upgrade that. Maybe it's a bit cheaper on that side to go through. Um, number of cores in your processor will be important. If you're going to run VMs and things right on your machine, it's going to need some cores and it's going to steal them, particularly if you're going to spin up like a, a network router or a switch. Um, they like dedicated cores because a lot of them are based on kind of physical hardware platforms. And so I, I often say, okay, if, if I'm buying a machine and I know I'm going to use it for VMs, I want as many cores. I don't care how fast the cores are. I just want a lot of cores. Like, give me the, the most cores that I can get out of the machine. Um, 
those are the, the factors I go through. Other than that, I mean, you can do a lot with just about any of the machines these days. Yeah. The new Windows subsystem for Linux is great, um, though I've been seeing a lot of people complain these days lately about it, it seems, because it, by using it, it like turns off your ability to do some other things. I haven't been Windows guy for a while, so I don't know the intricacies of that. Um, I'm glad to avoid that. I kind of just stuck in the, the Mac land, so... What about your team? Do, um, are they? Uh, it's just to try. try it, it, this is obviously not scientific. It's just to try and get a feel mm -hmm. from someone who's, you know, in the trenches. What do your team use? Mainly Macs, mainly Windows, mainly Linux, or just a mix of everything? Yeah, Cisco's Cisco's been somewhat unique. For from the day I started, every Cisco employee could pick which way they went. Um, and and in the engineer group, um, Macs have long been prevalent. Um, we see more Macs than we see Windows machines as they go through on that side. So I would say that we probably see more Macs than we see Windows. Um, but uh, but it's it's probably somewhat close. I mean, it's not like it's a 90-10 split. It's probably closer to like a 60-40 type of a split. Uh, split. We'll see plenty of Windows machines out there. And anyone like run Linux natively or is generally just spin up a VM? We... I think we have a couple of software developers that their primary machines are Linux-based um, as they go through, but it is—it's the rarity, and it's—it really is our our software developers, like the guys that are writing like hard code code, our our infrastructure engineer folks. I don't think any of them have gone like all in on Linux, but we've got some of our our software developers that I've noticed that that kind of live within Linux all the time, which is cool. I don't I don't have that background, like I never. I was never a, a dedicated Linux sysadmin. Um, I kind of like missed that part of my IT career. Um, I would be probably fine with Linux as my primary machine if I had like the GNOME desktop and would interact with it like it was a Mac. Um, but if I'm going to do that, I'll just I'll just use my Mac. I like it. It's easy, less thinking. Hank, we're running out of time, but I just want to ask you. You know, in the past, you were heavily involved in the DevNet website and like mm -hmm. some of the sandboxes. Can you let me give me an update? Are there any favorite sandboxes that you have, or you know, for if you're studying for DevNet associate uh, developer expert, are there sandboxes there that can help you with the studies? Yeah, it's a great question. So, uh, for the, about the last year, when I changed formally over to the learning and certifications team, I kind of got um, so I'm not as close to the DevNet and the sandbox team as I was when we worked before. But I can't answer the question specifically as they go through. My favorite sandbox. Um, has become kind of the Cisco NSO sandbox. And yeah. it's not just because of the NSO side, it's because when we built it, we put in a lot of things that make it kind of a nice all-in-one sandbox. So it provides, um, when you spin that sandbox up, it gives you a network topology that is made up of iOS, iOS XR, and XOS devices. I think there's a firewall as well. So it's, it's a nice topology that has a little bit of everything. Um, it has a functional kind of development workstation dev box that has the tooling necessary to do a lot of kind of network automation tasks. And then we recently added in um, GitLab and NetBox. And so it's kind of got the source of truth, CICDs, um, version control type of capabilities built into it. And so it's, it's the sandbox I often go to when I just need a, a place to develop like a lab or an example from, because it kind of gives me everything necessary to get started um, in one place. Um, if you're studying for a, a, the DevNet associate or professional or expert, and you want to experiment with the APIs from a particular platform, you'll find sandboxes for, I believe, everything that's, that's in the certifications available in the catalog. So there are ACI sandboxes and UCS sandboxes and... There's access from Iraqi APIs. Um, so you'll find everything you need in there. Um, one of the questions I've had before is, is there going to be a DevNet expert sandbox, like yeah. one sandbox that is kind of designed for the expert exam with everything in there? Um, I don't think there's anybody, I don't think there's any plans to build one sandbox to rule them all right now. Um, but there might in the future show up, but you'll find all the components necessary in the catalog. I mean, the, the, in the past, one of the problems we encountered is like to learn some of the new technologies, it's hard. I mean, some of the, to mm -hmm. virtualize it, you need a lot of RAM and stuff. But, yep. the, but the DevNet sandboxes have, like you say, almost everything now, yeah? Yeah, and it's, it, will, it should continue to do that. I don't yeah. anticipate any, any changes to that. You'll still find the machines there. So if you want to experiment with ACI or Firepower, you'll find them all up there, and then you don't have to run the VMs yourself. Hank, it's been too long and this went too quick, but you know, thanks so much for you know, taking the time and speaking with me. 
Yeah, absolutely. It was great to catch up with you, David. I'm sure we'll uh, we'll have a chance to chat some more as they go through. I'm curious to see what the feedback from your audience is on our chat, if they've got any questions we didn't get to. Yeah, so let me put it this way. Anyone, you know, if you've got questions, put it in the comments below. Would you like me to interrogate, I like it, interrogate Hank about, uh, you know, techie topics? We, Hank and I did a lot of technical, you know, interviews and discussions in the past. Are there any topics that you, you know, want us to talk about? And Hank, I mean, is there any that you think would be useful coming up? Oh, man. I mean, there's there are all sorts of stuff we could dive into. Um, and we can certainly brainstorm some pieces that are there. But I think what would be awesome is that if your audience said, what what do they want to see? Like, what do they want to yeah. see us dive into? What do they want to see us dissect and explore and kind of explain? And that would be, I think, even better than us just brainstorming, uh, pulling out of the wind. If we get no suggestions, we can brainstorm and pull out of thin air. But it'd be great to see what people want to hear. Hank, thanks so much, man. Always a pleasure. <laughs>